Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hi, I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, a hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator getting a booster shot. Hi, I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics. Happy to be at AUKUS in person for the podcast. This is David Landy. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, uh, where I currently operate, but I'm looking for new block time in the metaverse. In this episode, coming to you from the AUKUS annual meeting, we'll hear from Dr. Ry Kagan and Dr. Greg Galladay. My name is Rylan Kagan, and I work at uh, OHSU in Portland, Oregon. So, Dr. Kagan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the paper you're presenting at August this year? Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. And the uh, paper I'm presenting is looking at readmission rates 30 days after primary hip and knee arthroplasty across data sets. Basically, what we did was when kind of Medicare and uh, CMS as part of the ACA shine the light on readmissions as this, you know, key factor that they had felt was important for value and quality as part of their hospital readmission reduction program. We decided to look at, you know, our experience with that and how we look at it internally. What are the data sets that we report readmissions to? And then what are, do they agree on those rates of readmission? So we pulled our AJR data, our data from CMS, data from the Vizient data set, which you guys might know is the old University Healthcare Consortium, now Vizient, and then also this epic reporting tool called Cognos and looked at our readmission rates across the four, and they all disagreed quite significantly. So, Oh, interesting. So the data sets that you guys had were not necessarily congruent across multiple platforms? For the same outcome, we just looked at simply readmissions 30 days after. And so since this is now this important thing that, that we, we all need to be tracking, since it's now tied to reimbursement, we're like, okay, so how are we internally going to be looking at this from like a quality standpoint? And, you know, we go to these meetings and you say, okay, here's your readmission rate. And we're at one meeting and, and we looked at it and we're like, that seems off or wrong. There's like, there's no way. And it was a, a number that was pulled from the Vizient data set. And after the meeting, I met with our quality, just emailing and texting with our quality specialist. And she's actually a co-author on her paper. I was like, there's no way that's right. And then we pulled the Medicare data set number and it was completely different. And we're like, huh, there might be something here. So we created a match cohort of all of our institutions. Some other authors have done this. And so, but what they've done and a little different to our paper is they kind of looked at similar patient profiles and then looked at it, not the exact same patients. So we actually matched patients and looked at the exact patients. So really comparing those apples to apples with the same patients. And we still found that the, all the data sets basically disagreed on what our true readmission rate was. So you're telling me my life is a lie and that I can't trust anything. <laughs> so you're academics at OHSU. That's correct. You grew up in Portland. And you know this is interesting to me as someone who grew up in Pacific Northwest as well, but how has life changed or how have you seen Portland change over the last 20 years? Or how, and specifically, like, how has COVID affected your practice? That's a lot of questions wrapped up into uh, one question, but yes. Oh, and go. Okay. <laughs> he can handle it. He can handle it. Uh, for the first part, I mean, I think the biggest challenge that we're all having right now is capacity. 
Oregon has either the lowest or one of the lowest patient to bed ratios in the whole country. And we're just really struggling with, in terms of all the hospitals are at capacity right now, this little bit of the remaining COVID influx has really just pushed us to the limit. And so we're really just as a community struggling. And that's been this rapid population growth that's occurred in Portland and Oregon and Northwest. And actually, I mean, I guess the whole West Coast over the last 10, 20 years. And, and so it stressed us as the academic tertiary referral center is, you know, we, we can't help out the rest of the state in the ways that we used to. And, and, you know, as much as we feel bad about it, we have this reality where we really need to increase the number of beds and critical access capacity in our region. Do you think that's pushed you guys to be sort of more thoughtful about same day discharges and things like that? Or is the healthcare system just not that sort of well integrated? No, that's a a great point. Yeah, we have done that. Um, I work at a, a community hospital part time too, where we take now a lot of our more straightforward cases, or even actually a lot of revisions now too, just because it's the only place we can operate. And we have now created a same day discharge pathway there. But that was actually, you know, a surgeon, uh, one of my junior partners, Lizzie Lieberman, who's here. She just did it herself. Like, made, like we have to do this because we can't operate otherwise for a while. And she just pushed and made a same day discharge pathway for that place, and it's been working great. So. We've all had to kind of adapt, and I think we all wish, you know, maybe some of our institutions would have taken a more of a leadership role in some of these things. But it's really come down to the surgeons, and that's just a great example of what she's done there, and it's been pretty incredible. Do you think you've had a little, little bit more leadway on sort of readmissions for the same-day discharges because it's been sort of brought on by this lack of hospital availability as opposed to sort of people trying to do it because they own a surgery center? Yeah, I think so. That's a Really good question. I think everyone was a little, maybe a little more motivated in terms of the hospital side to, to help us out with it, if that makes sense. In, yeah, have you guys gotten that, any yeah. pushback sort of? Because one thing we've seen is when trying to do same day discharges sort of on the fly because of COVID, you know, it's tough to just get it right the first time and to not have eased into it. And so we've been lucky when we've had readmissions. It's not our unexpected admissions. It hasn't been a big deal because I think everyone has the same kind of buy-in. Well, so that's interesting because I would have thought the other way. I would have thought if the pressure is that there's no beds, that you actually need to be like selective, very selective of who you try to do same day. Because if they get unexpectedly admitted, like the pressure on the system is so great. But tell me what your experience has been. I mean, we were talking about this a little last night, Mark and I were like, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny now all of a sudden, like you tell people if they, you know, can't go home right after their surgery, we're not gonna be able to do their surgery because there's no sniff beds and we're not gonna do that. Or And, and all of a sudden there's an aunt or a cousin that this is gonna fly out and then come stay with them. Yeah. So we're, we're, <laughs> they find ants. Yeah, all of a sudden yeah, I have five ants that yeah, can yeah. come and stay with them. Oh so yeah, the, the long lost cousin is now here to like take care of them for two weeks after their hip. So, um, but yeah, I think that people all feeling that when they, you know, you're literally told that we can't do your surgery if you don't find some support and we get you home right away after. And, and so the whole community has got to work together to make that happen. And what I've been surprised with is the slowness of adoption. And I get like, you know, at the bigger hospitals, we don't do like we hadn't done same day discharges for a long time because that's just not what we did. And so getting them to change, like to get this behemoth to like change paths was difficult. Whereas our ASC was like, yeah, of course, like that's what we do. But getting the hospital to change I mean, literally everything from like talking to the nurses about, okay, these patients are going home. That's okay. Like it's, it's okay. They're going home was a hard thing to do. And so it was harder to get the big hospitals to transition. But once I think they realized, at least in my experience, once they realized we were going to have to shut down surgery, like full tilt, 
dollars matter. And so it's either do surgery and change or not do surgery and stay the way you are. Um, and I don't know if that was the experience at OHSU, but I mean, we found eventually, like once the dollars came into play, like hospitals kind of changed their tune a little bit. I think for us, not as much maybe of, of that, the dollars or the financial aspect, just because it's, you know, we're OHSU, we're just so big that I think we're a much smaller drop in the bucket than most smaller hospitals where really having a joints program or orthopedics is critical for their bottom line. But I think more that, that my community hospital experience maybe a little bit feeling that though. So, you know, it's easy to imagine how it would be a lot of the pros of going back to sort of where you grew up to work. What are some of the unexpected challenges? That's a unexpected challenges for that. I, I love being back like to where I grew up. you like run into your yeah. kindergarten teacher in clinic or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, oh, actually, I have a good one. So um, <laughs> there is a good family friend, was close friends with a patient of mine who I just did his hip's wife, and they were showing like baby pictures of me and one of my best friends who I grew up with. Like they brought that into clinic and was showing all the MAs and everything. Like here's where I was like the little baby, like, you know, naked running around the yard. I was like, oh, this is, this is great. This is just what I want my whole team to be seeing right now. So that happened recently. That was a fun <laughs> clinic day. People in the clinic love that. So what are you most looking forward to about the annual meeting this year? Just being back, having it in person, getting to see people again and, and feeling that just some things you can't do as much virtually and, and it'll be just so nice to, to, to have that. You just get a, such a better experience. Hi, I'm Greg Galladay editor-in-chief of Arthroplasty Today from VCU Health in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for joining us. Anything in particular you're looking forward to about this year's annual meeting? Well, one of the things I'm looking forward to is just getting face-to-face with people that I'm missing and haven't collaborated with. I got to run into several former colleagues and former fellows and sat down and just being in person is a really nice change from the pandemic experience that we've had and being able to be here in person and interact on a face-to-face basis. I think it's just such a richer experience for me. We've been fortunate that we've been able to use technology to continue our educational and institutional and society requirements, but at the end of the day, the face-to-face interpersonal connection things are what really make these meetings great, I think. So less of a question, more of a comment, really, but (laughs) I really, really like the special issue you put out for Arthroplasty Today around the conference. I think it sort of rewards the authors for for putting great stuff in your journal and then also highlights the journal to people who might not be seeing it on as regular a basis. Just curious about your thoughts on that and any other sort of things you have in the pipeline. Sure, yeah. The highlights issue, as the name says, it's a highlight for us. So it is compiled with the courtesy of uh, Elsevier. That's something that they offer us as our publisher to put together a, a print version every year. And what we do is we solicit the editorial board for their picks on their best few articles and then compile those results and try to have an issue that has articles that are representative of all the type of article types that we publish and put together it in a really nice format. I'm really happy with this issue and have gotten a lot of positive feedback from it already, so that's nice. So I have a conflict also being on the Arthroplasty Today editorial board, but so conflicted in this question, but how can young Arthroplasty group members who want to be involved in Arthroplasty Today, how can they get involved? What can they do? Well, I think there's several easy things to do. First of all, 
read the journal. I think it has a lot of good information in it. It was started with the vision of Brian McGrory to be an avenue for case reports, which I still think are very instructive and are still a significant part of the journal. So case report section is always full of really informational tidbits. And I think we can only do so much with big data and large series and randomized prospective trials. A lot can be learned from case reports. So you can also use the journal as because of its size, it lends itself well to a journal club environment. And that's another avenue for participation in using the journal. But I also think that young orthoplasty surgeons who have an interest should sign up to be reviewers. We're always looking to expand our reviewer roles and having quality, timely peer review is essential for the operations of the journal. And you have done a great job and on the editorial board as a result of that. So we actually rate and track the reviewers and and see how they do. So sign up for, for being a reviewer and then do a good job at it. And that's kind of how things go in that regard. And then it's also a nice avenue to publish your work. So as a young surgeon, particularly in academic, but also in in community practices, the young surgeons often get case reportable type (laughs) of cases to handle um, disaster plasties. And they need not always be disasters, but I think that publishing some work in the journal, submitting work for publication is another way to get involved. I think in addition to the case reports, the surgical technique stuff, I think is also very widely cited and referenced, and you don't find that in other journals. It's very practical, like I can change my practice based on that. So yeah, one more question about as Journal of Arthroplasty transitions from Dr. Callahan to Dr. Mont, there was some mention that maybe the number of articles per issue may decrease in Journal of Arthroplasty. So it may become more selective. How do you think that's going to influence arthroplasty today? And do you think you will publish more articles or you will just be more selective in what you publish? That's a great question. We've been very fortunate that uh, Acus solely owns arthroplasty today. The Journal of Arthroplasty is owned actually by Elsevier. So we have sole ownership and we collaborate obviously with the publisher, but we have sole ownership of it. And the Journal of Arthroplasty and Arthroplasty today are considered, uh, I think, sort of companion or sister journals, if you will. And Dr. Callahan and the Journal of Arthroplasty have been very good about cascading articles through a pretty seamless mechanism. You know, we'd like to keep the best articles in arthroplasty in our specialty journals that our society sponsors and mans and runs. And so that's been a really helpful adjunct to us getting articles that are publishable quality articles, but maybe aren't in the scope of journal arthroplasty. And I think Michael Mont is uh, very committed to continuing that trend. And with the proposed reduction in the article volume that at least I've heard is going to happen with Journal of Arthroplasty, that should allow us access to more articles to consider. And we don't have exactly a publication volume target, but if you look at our journal, Arthroplasty Today, just over the last couple of years, the journal volume has increased significantly. So we've had a huge uptick in submissions, a huge uptick in accepted publications and our accepted manuscripts. And if you look at the quality and diversity of the types of papers that we've been publishing in the last few years, it's just dramatically, dramatically changed, I would argue, for the better. So I think we're kind of hitting our stride now in year seven. Arthroplasty Today does a really good job of highlighting articles on social media. You guys have a good Twitter account. And honestly, I get a lot of my information from that. We're all just be on my phone 
not wasting time, of course, but you know, you're on your Twitter feed, you see an Arthroplasty Today article, I, I'll read that. How do you see both Arthroplasty Today as well as just research in general, maybe transitioning into more of that of a media for consumption? And before you respond, I'm gonna obnoxiously interrupt and shout out Jamie Bellamy for doing such a great job with the social media stuff, so. We're extremely lucky to have Jamie Bellamy as our social media editor. She was doing some work with Chad Kruger and doing some work for Journal of Arthroplasty. And then we snatched her over to, to Arthroplasty today. And she's just done a fabulous job. If you look at the, our number of followers and the amount of social media activity that we get, it's pretty significant. And the commentary that comes through is stimulating. We've had a number of posts that have generated some back and forth and uh, some constructive criticism, including to me. So you gotta can't, uh, can't believe all the hype. But, but Jamie's done a really good job of just increasing our social media presence and following. And I think if you look at the future of academic publishing, I have to believe that it's going to become more and more electronic, more and more social media driven, more and more about real time conversation and speed to publication and easy access and remote access and all that. So she's really helped along those. Yeah, the visual abstracts in particular are hugely helpful. And I think if you look at the visual abstract for 30 seconds, you can see the key message. And I think Jamie does such a good job of illustrating those key points in a way that makes sense. So, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. And in in, uh, the case of her visual abstract, you know, pictures worth a thousand clicks. So (laughs) she's really done a fantastic job. Can't say enough about her. So you mentioned the sort of the move to electronic and quicker publication times. What are your thoughts on preprint servers? So that's a controversial topic, of course. So one of the things that we do when we're reviewing papers is have uh, plagiarism software and you can see the things that have been already out on preprint servers. We don't have a strict ban on it per se, but having things go out on a preprint server and get wikied along the way, I'm not sure. Can we define really quick what is a preprint server oh, for, for our, for our yeah. listeners or people who may be at this table right now? Anna doesn't know what it means. Uh, okay, That's, you uh, keep doing this, Mark. I'm looking out for her here oh, to take the gosh. fall. <laughs> so, so, so we'll edit this out and I'll redo it if I explain it incorrectly, but essentially a preprint server is an opportunity for a research group to share their results while they're still in peer review. I think, you know, this has existed for a while, but became very popular during COVID when people were like, oh my God, I need to get these results out as soon as possible. This is gonna directly impact health policy or the way we take care of patients. But it's very controversial, met with mixed results, right? Because once this is out there, anyone can access it. It has not been truly vetted. Sure. And then you get into a question of like, okay, well, if it's already out there and it's already exists, why should a journal now publish it? Sure and take yeah. all that effort. And so I don't know the best way, but it, you know, it's becoming very popular in some other scientific fields outside of medicine and especially outside of orthopedics. Yeah, we want to be careful to credit the original authors of the work and that's where a challenge can come in. So like you said, there's no copyright or ownership when things are out on a preprint server. We don't necessarily exclude preprint server manuscripts that have been out there but it has to be taken carefully so that you make sure you have the original authors and that the information that's out there is unique and it's ethically appropriate. So like any advancement, there always comes the 
the chance that they could create an unanticipated problem. And I think that's the preprint servers definitely serve a purpose, but they do present some challenges sometimes. Before, I mean, the only access that I had to arthroplasty articles or arthroplasty information was through Arthroplasty Today, through Journal of Arthroplasty. Now, if I can go on Twitter and post my stuff, maybe I don't need Journal of Arthroplasty. Mm. So how do the publications stay relevant if I can reach people without going through you or without mm. going so through the journal How articles? do we get people to understand the importance of peer review? Exactly. Basically? That's, uh, you, you took the words right or, out of my mouth. Even, I mean, post or to even go through it because maybe the, maybe you'll do this study and somebody doesn't like it and it won't get published. So how do we keep peer review relevant? Well, like any information determining truth from fiction can be difficult, even in the print journals, right? Sure. So when patients see things online, then they accept them as true because they're written or they uh, <laughs> yeah. a lot of word of mouth things. But you can't discount the value of the peer review process. And I think that we have to be as transparent as we can about when something was posted, whether it was peer reviewed or not. The beauty of social media is that anyone can post anything within limits. Right. <laughs> and I still think that the peer review process is where the quality control comes in. Sure. You're saying I should not be getting my surgical techniques off of BuzzFeed. This is what I'm <laughs> hearing. I, I don't, I'll no, maybe adjust kind of, a little wait, bit. Is there like a quiz? Which implant are you? <laughs> which, That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> 30 things. What, 39 what stem things, geometry are yeah, you? Exactly. 30, 39 things you didn't I'm know about ligament balancing and were afraid to ask. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think, I think we need to wrap up, unfortunately. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.